0: is episode 186 of The Stem Cell Podcast, Human Congenital Heart Disease with Dr. Sean Wu. Hey everybody, we are Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. We try to pick top stem cell researchers to interview on the podcast, but we want to know who you want to hear. If you know anyone that would make a great guest, send us your suggestions at info at stemcellpodcast.com. Today, we have Dr. Sean Wu, the illustrious from Stanford University. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on cardiac development and disease modeling. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up.
1: But first, did you know that you can model arrhythmias and cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells? My guy, Dr. Sean Wu, definitely knows that. Watch Stem Cells On Demand webinar to learn how patient-derived and gene-edited HPSC lines can be used to model cardiac disease in vitro. Visit www.stemcell.com cardio webinar to learn more. You
0: know, Arun, you're talking about your guy. We're going to talk to your guy in a few minutes. I got to talk briefly about one of my favorite guys in science, Mark Tomashima. OK? He was at MSK, now he's at Blue Rock. He dropped a bomb recently in Cell Stem Cell. Of course, Lorenz Studer and Vivian Tabar, they're also on the paper. OK? They're there, too. But I'm talking about Mark, because he's my guy. Um, and this is a big story, I think. This is a real watershed for the field. You know, Parkinson's disease was one of those diseases that were dragged out as a as, a, as a, a kind of a target, something that we could go after with embryonic stem cells, pluripotent stem cells, and I think we're you know we're getting close to that goal. Um, just as the current state of the art, the pharmacologic therapy, it's all about augmenting the dopamine levels in the brain. You use these dopamine supplements or agonists, or you can inhibit the, inhibit the dopamine degradation. But these therapies are not long-lasting. There's no real neuroprotective effect there, You're just kind of masking the symptoms. They've used human fetal tissue. Uh, And there's been successful transplants of human fetal tissue with uh, reports of long-term benefits, but it's tough. When you do these placebo-controlled double-blind studies in the U.S., um, they haven't reached their primary endpoints, and you can imagine why. Any kind of fetal preparation, there's going to be a lot of variability there. Uh, Nevertheless, there have been enough successes, namely in this... uh, in a Euro funded study to warrant continued investigation. And there was just actual recruitment was finished of 11 patients in this European Union funded study, trans Euro. Um, but even so, any kind of fetal transplant is fraught with a lot of ethical, I guess, but also logistical. It's tough. You have preparations that are going to be different and it's limited fundamentally. Um let's talk about human embryonic stem cells. This is the promise. We talk about something that you can get unlimited amounts of it. You could really uh you know do all the diffs and, and scale it up and then do a bunch of quality control. You don't have to worry so much about the source of material there, the ethics, the logistics of that. Um and we've done it, you know. We've done it as a society globally. There've been two patients. We haven't done it a lot. There's been two patients, one in Japan um, more recently, there was a patient uh, in the US on a compassionate use basis, and there's even been some data reported on those patients. Uh, but, you know, let's get to the nitty gritty here. We're talking about off the shelf cells. That's what we need. We need something that's plentiful and effective um, and quality controlled and made under good manufact- manufacturing processes, uh, so called GMP. Uh, And Lorenz and his group, they've previously shown a lot of studies, devoted his whole career to this and made tremendous strides. He and Vivian Tabar, his partner, as well as Mark Tomashima, my guy. Um, They've done a lot of in vitro diff. They've, They've really mastered... Uh, the recipe, and in fact, there's a companion piece in the same issue of Cell Stem Cell that I'm not going to go into, where they talk about really uh, optimizing uh, the differentiation of these dopaminergic cells. In this story, they uh, really wanted to set out the the standard for a preclinical move here. I think they had to demonstrate that the the that these uh, midbrain dopaminergic neurons were authentic, um, and that they could make them under GMP conditions, and that's effectively what they did. Look at the paper, there's a lot of details. Uh, the real boom here is showing, of course, the function uh, in these mice. Uh, they had this uh, Parkinsonian rodents that they rescued the behavioral abnormalities, uh, amphetamine and induced turning. Uh, but uh, you know, bottom line here, this is, I think, the next big step, uh, and and really, I think the 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 prerequisite to clinical application and trial, and I think that's what we're going to see v- in very short order. I'm really excited about this story. Congratulations, Mark, you've earned this.
1: Congrats, and let's see. Big step. It's a big step for the Parkinson's community worldwide, really, and for medicine in general. I mean, this is the hope, right? ESC derived dopaminergic neurons to perhaps restore motor function in these folks. And at, as you know, these days, there's very little you can do if you are on that spectrum and on that decline when you've been having Parkinson's. So it's a big source of hope. And if you can do it in ESCs, you can fear. Th- theoretically do it in IPSCs too. So that's a big plus. You know, I'm just, we we're talking about this before the show. It's really a golden age when it comes to ESC, IPSC, and cell therapy in general. Like we were just talking about, like Juno Therapeutics, Sana Biotechnologies, this very recent company that just IPO'd. They actually have some IPS products as well. Uh, CAR-T, IPS-derived CAR-T, that's it that works. These are huge startups that are getting a lot, a lot of money from their IPOs and from their venture backing. Sana, for example, raised like 500 million or something like that. And it's there's big names, there's huge names in stem cell biology that are backing these companies. Just to give the example of, you know, we talked about Lorenz, we talked about Sonia Shrepfer when it comes to sauna and even Chuck Murray, he used to be on the podcast a while back. He actually joined sauna, uh, you know, biotherapeutics and is part of their, like a pretty senior level scientist in their company now. So it's a golden age. These are not just, you know, hopes and dreams now. These are actually things that are Forming products, companies that are being spun out, that are being funded by a lot, a lot of money. So it's 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 bottom line, you know, if the patients help, if the patients are benefiting, like in this example of the Parkinson's community, then that's a huge plus. But it's a it's very, very exciting time to be in the cell therapy field for sure.
0: Yeah, it's a tipping point. You know, I look back at, uh, say, Jeron, right? That was the first big player that came in, the industrial player that tried to dip into the stem cell field, uh, and it, it was a fail. But uh, we're here now. It's a tipping point. And I, I don't think uh, we we should be surprised to see more academic investigators moving into the industrial sphere because I think that's what it's going to take to bring the stuff to market. Um, and it's exciting, as you said. You know, just looking at the engraftment in this paper. You know, have a look at the pictures, guys. It's amazing that we're getting the degrees of that I would have never predicted. Okay. And it's not it doesn't stop there. You know, this is how you know we're ready for application is cause it's enough to show that it gets in and that it works and it has a functional benefit. But then they go the extra mile and so it doesn't go anywhere else. They do all the nitty gritty stuff that no one likes to do, but you've got to do it in order to get the IND approved. So this is exciting and it's only going to get better, Arun. I can't wait.
1: Definitely exciting, but we're not all about application here day long. We've got to talk a little bit about the pure basic science, too. And the paper I'm going to talk about, in, in my opinion, it's probably, we'll call it top three, top three papers so far this year when it comes to just true, beautiful, beautiful Pure Basic Science Discovery, and this is coming from the lab of Joanna Wissaka over at Stanford. Also on the paper are the illustrious Irv Weissman. Uh, first author is Antoine Zalk, uh, also shared with Rahul Sinha, and a couple friends friends of mine from back in grad school, Gun Galati and also Dan Wesch of the Stanford Stem Cell Program, are on the paper as well. It's a research article in Science, and the title is Reactivation of the Pluripotency Program Proceeds Formation of the Cardiac Neural Crest. Yeah, reprogramming. Reprogramming, in a sense, happening in vivo. Now, we all know all about you know, IPS reprogramming and how you use OCT4, SOX2, the canonical Yamanaka factors to do the deed and actually turn somatic tissues back into pluripotent stem cells. But this paper is suggesting that something analogous to that may actually be happening in vivo, naturally. We're, we all – all A lot of us here are stem cell biologists, so we know about stem cell differentiation and cell differentiation in general. And it's usually canonically defined as a unidirectional process, right? We've all seen that picture of the Waddington diagram where you have a marble at the top of the hill and it's going to roll down to different sections, different uh, valleys at the bottom of the hill. The marble can either roll down into the endoderm side, the mesoderm side, or the ectoderm side. Of course, the Yamanaka paper blew that up. It blew up the Waddington diagram and showed that you can roll the marble back up the hill. And in fact, this this paper uh, from the Wasaka Lab is showing that you can roll the marble back up, perhaps naturally, and it ha- probably perhaps naturally happens in vivo in the context of cranial neural crest cells, which are an exciting cell type because it's sort of straddling the boundary between mesoderm and ectoderm, all right? These cranial neural crest cells are known to turn into mesenchyme and also known to turn into neural and glial progenders. So they're sort of a precursor to the craniofacial kind of structure, right? That's sort of canonically what they're known as. But the Wisaka lab showed through a bunch of beautiful lineage tracing, we're using Wint 1 Cree, Rosa 26-TD tomato, and a bunch of single-cell analysis, of course, that the reason the cranial neural crest cells actually have that bipotency, the ability to turn the mesenchyme and into the neural and glial progenitors, is because they are... Actually, they actually are right at that cusp. There is a reprogramming process that actually occurs uh, after they initially differentiate down the ectoderm lineage. They transform back up, go back up the hill into these oct-4, hint, hint, oct-4 positive cranial neurocrust cells. And from there, you can turn them into the mesenchyme. You can turn them into the glioprogenitors. So that's how they can actually turn into mesoderm and ectoderm. So it kind of answers this age-old question that we've had about these cranial neurocrust cells and why they're so potent. They've actually got a little bit of oct-4 in them. So it's a it's an exciting story because it, it's sort of a, it's a paradigm shift, really. It's showing that, hey, maybe this Yamanaka approach of reprogramming, something analogous to it is actually happening naturally in, in vivo. And my next question is, if it's happening in the cranial neurocrust cells, where else might it be happening as well? Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm amazed that I mean it's kind of a bit of a mind twist because like would it, would it have occurred to you that the Waddington didn't apply in this one specific cell lineage without Yamanaka? You know, like we would would we have found this, or, you know, if you want to reverse it, like if this stuff is lying around in nature, all this natural reprogramming, we never looked at oct four, like when we stained for oct four everywhere in all the tissues, and we saw, oh, look at some oct four positive cells there. Hmm. And what we just looked the other way, like it was lying right there. The whole idea of Waddington being so ironclad, yeah, we left that behind, you know, over a decade ago. But somehow, I've still been carrying around this idea that, the germ layers are sacrosanct. You know, that you can't wander from one germ layer to the other, or you can't expand your potential within one germ layer. I should have known better. Uh, I guess it took the Wasica lab to uh, bring me to my senses. But it's it's uh, like you said. It's I mean, it's early in the year, but I think this one is going to be one of the top ten just in terms of just conceptual innovation.
1: Well, sorry, Dr. Waddington, your diagram is a little bit dated these days. Of course. When it comes to stem cell biology and when it comes to training stem cell biologists, we've all seen that canonical image of the marble rolling down the hill. But we've actually covered a lot of papers here on the show in the months recently that throw a wrench in the diagram. There's a lot of plasticity when it comes to cell types. And I think cell, single cell analysis is really doing an amazing job revealing that plasticity, the ability to convert one cell type perhaps directly into another. So it's not always set in stone.
0: Yeah, don't try to put biology in a corner, or, or biology will smack you across the mouth. Um, you know, talking about these dogmas, I, I got a story that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, this is—I like this too because it's not a big name. I like to, to elevate some of these names that aren't aren't, aren't the biggest and the most uh, you know recognizable. This story from Cynthia Jew. Who's at uh, Ju? Who's at a McGovern Medical School, University of Texas Health Science Center, Houston? I also like this story because it was a kind of serendipitous observation that led to it. But let me backtrack a little bit. We're talking here about liver transplantation, um, and like many organs, when you transplant the liver, you know Arun will tell you about the heart. The big deal here is the ischemia and then the reperfusion. You know when you restore perfusion um you know reanastomose those vessels and you get all the blood flooding back in there you it's it can be injurious because you have a massive inflammatory response it can lead to early graft dysfunction or graft rejection in many cases um and so in, in the context of the liver, this is is a little nuanced, but it, it creates a, a framework where you really can only accept livers that are, you know, prime, so to speak. Uh, of course, all organs is a shortage of, but um, marginal, quote unquote, marginal liver allographs, Let's say from elderly donors or from so-called like fatty livers, or sometimes if a liver is retrieved after circulatory death of the donor. All of those would be considered marginal and not suitable for transplant. Why? Because those conditions make the liver really susceptible to, uh, ischemia reperfusion injury and most of the time results in the graft being useless. So they don't waste their time. All right. So now let's cut to isonophils. Okay. This is a, a bone marrow derived hematopoietic cell. Hey, I have to get a hematopoietic story in when I can. They're granulocytes, uh, and what they're thought to mediate is the host defense against parasitic infection, but also in a pathological context, they um, are implicated in all kinds of allergic uh, diseases. Uh, So, that was the idea. That was the dogma that they were restricted to that, but there's uh, emerging evidence suggesting that isonophils also play a role in modulating T-cell response and promoting tissue repair, uh, and resolving inflammation, okay? So in this case, the Zhu lab, um, they just stumbled across this observation when they were doing transplants that isonophils rapidly accumulate in the liver uh, following transplantation in humans. They had 22 liver grafts that they observed, and they were flooded with isonophils that weren't there before. They weren't there in the healthy tissue, so it had something to do with the transplant, of course. So they wanted to see what goes on with this. Uh, they went not just... Uh, one or two, but three models. They did two genetic mouse models uh, and one antibody-mediated depletion model where they got rid of isonophils for the most part and showed that this condition really exacerbated the uh, liver injury after this ischemic, uh, ischemic reperfusion condition and showed that they could rescue that. By doing adoptive transfer of um, isonophils or bone marrow from a, a healthy donor that would then populate with isonophils, they could rescue that condition um, and reduce that ischemic reperfusion injury uh, in those. But also even in wild type mice, if they could do this adoptive transfer to kind of amp up the isonophil response, even in wild type mice, it, it mice, it, it reduced. The injury. So, and then mechanistically, they unpacked it a bit and showed that it was interleukin 13 that was made by the hepatocytes that was mediating this hepatoprotective effect. Um, what's interesting here, I think, and exciting clinically, is that it really expands the the, the pool of organs that might be useful uh, for transfer by exploiting this kind of. Rescue of isonophils. And I'm sure, Arun, you're thinking the same thing as I am is that, you know, ischemic reperfusion injury, it's not only the liver, yeah?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the first thing I thought of. IR injury happens everywhere, and it happens not just with liver transplantation, but with transplantation of other organs as well. So the natural question is how conserved is this mechanism? We could all use more organs. Well, I could use one liver. I'm okay with one liver. But the world could use more organs for transplants. So, this is if we can really up those numbers, thanks to this observation, I'm all for it.
0: Cynthia, make it work. You're halfway there. This is very exciting. And, uh, you know, I love doing any kind of adoptive transfer. You know, I'm a vampire. So, give me some isonophils, (laughs) people.
1: (laughs) <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Moving on to the last story of the roundup before we get to my guy, my PhD advisor, Dr. Sean Wu. It's a paper that I'm sure he could appreciate. It's a iPS cardiomyocyte disease model. Title of the paper is Pathogenic LMNA Variants Disrupt Cardiac Lamina-Chromatin Interactions and Derepress." repress Alternative Fate Genes. It's a self stem cell paper coming from the lab of Rajan Jain and also Kieran Musanur is on the paper as well. I believe shared co last authors from there at the Perelman School of Medicine at, uh, at UPenn. First author is Parisa Shah, and also on the paper is my other former PhD advisor, Dr. Joe Wu. No relation. So, LMNA, laminin A, it's a um, it's a known disease causing gene. Okay, pathogenic mutations in LMNA cause abnormal nuclear structure. If you've ever run into or seen images of mutant LMNA. Cardiomyocytes or other cell types, you can see that the normally circular, well-defined nuclear envelope is disrupted in these cells, in these element immune cells, and it also confers a disease phenotype. As I mentioned, there's a lot of different issues, but in particular, dilated cardi- cardiomyopathy (DCM), a thinning of the left ventricle of the heart, which you know ultimately can lead to heart failure. There's been a lot of interest in understanding how these LMA mutations actually link directly to dilated cardiomyopathy and how they cause these tissue-restricted disease phenotypes. So, what these folks at UPenn did was, you know, relatively straightforward. They introduced these LMA mutations from folks with dilated cardiomyopathy into iPSCs, differentiated them into cardiomyocytes, something that I do, still do here 10 years later, and found that the iPSC cardiomyocytes, specifically the cardiomyocytes, not hepatocytes, not adipocytes, have this canonical nuclear, uh, messed up nuclear morphology. And also disruptions in peripheral chromatin, okay? And the disruption regions of chromatin were actually enriched for transcriptionally active genes and regions with lower uh, contact frequency of laminin B1. So you have an altered nuclear envelope but not only that, it's not just a structural problem. You're actually connecting that to an epigenome level issue that's leading to a transcriptional issue. So structural, transcriptional, epigenome, the the great triangle, right? <laughs> so, and to finally to wrap things up, you know, we've talked ad nauseum, and we'll talk to Sean about this as well, about how this is a limited model because IPS cardiomyocytes are immature. But they brought it back to the patient. They brought it back to the primary cardiac tissue and found that the myocardium, the cardiac muscle from folks with the L-M&A variants, also had these uh, altered transcriptional pathways, non myocyte pathways, and also the altered nuclear structure, okay? So what they proposed here was that this lamina nuclear network is actually important for safeguarding the cellular identity and that when you have a mutation in the LMNA gene, you might disrupt the chromatin structure, which ultimately leads to transcriptional abnormalities, which ultimately leads to misexpression of genes. So it's a it's a beautiful story. It's really connecting multiple... Facets of cardiac biology, bringing it back to the patients, uh, helping us understand a major cause of a major disease in dilated cardiomyopathy.
0: I hate to do this to you, partner, but you know you're always talking about the heart, the heart, and the thing that plagues the heart—it's the immaturity. <laughs> the immaturity. What is that relevant with this lamin Because I I get confused. Lamin A isn't that the whole uh, progeria? There's so—I I mean, it's so deep. It's so deep on this that I'm kind of lost. But um, what about the maturation and implications of that? Do you think that that's, I mean,
1: it's relevant? I think it is relevant. And I mean, you're right. Progeria is a disease of premature aging. So perhaps IPS cells are better suited to model a disease like that. But the reality is dilated cardiomyopathy often only manifests in adulthood, like after decades and decades of development Mm. right adult development whereas as you know these cells are made in a manner of weeks so sure you can recapitulate the altered nuclear structure you don't have those nice circular nuclei but there's a disconnect right you have adult disease you have immature cells I hate to sound like a broken record, but (laughs) hey, maybe we can talk to Sean about
0: that. Yeah, well, I I put it on you. My apologies. Um, But let's get on with it from one woo to another, shall we? Before we get there, I got to ask you guys a question. Do you work with skeletal muscle progenitor cells? The Stem Cell Technologies Human Myocult Workflow supports your muscle research from start to finish, allowing you to derive, expand, and differentiate human skeletal muscle progenitors. You can also expand mouse myogenic progenitors using the mouse myocult expansion medium. Look into that. To learn more, go to www.stemcell.com myocult. Now on to the interview. All right, everybody. Today on the podcast, we have a special guest, a friend of our co-host, Aruna, a friend to the whole scientific universe, for that matter, Dr. Sean Wu, who's Associate Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine. The Wu Lab uh, focuses on identifying mechanisms responsible for human congenital heart disease Sean's lab uses mouse models and pluripotent stem cells to study cardiovascular, developmental biology, and to engineer cardiac tissue. Sean, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Yeah,
2: thanks a lot for having me on the show. Really looking forward to this podcast chat.
1: Yeah, thanks for being here, Sean. Fun fact for our listeners, you've been a mentor of mine since even before my PhD in your lab. We actually met way back when, back in the dark ages, when I was doing an undergraduate summer program at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. And that's when you actually convinced me to join you over on the West Coast as you relocated your lab to Stanford. So I know what you're all about, and we go way back. And our listeners probably know that you're an expert on all things cardiac development, mouse and human. But your lab has actually recently branched into other areas of interest too, like uh, 3D printing, for example, and we'll get to the cardiomyocyte proliferation stuff in a little bit, but give us a current overview of what the Shawn Wu lab is working on right now, cardiac development and otherwise.
2: Yeah, so Arun, it's uh, great to have this chat with you and great to reconnect and you're bringing me back a lot of good memories from the years of you having been in lab and even you know prior to that <laughs> when you were back at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Uh, it you know certainly has been quite interesting watching the development of the field um, and also uh, kind of be part of a lot of the interesting and exciting work that's been going on um, you know as we um, previously started out you know at Boston children working on heart development with pluripotent stem cell we've continued that coming to Stanford um, in 2012. A lot of the work we do in heart development centers around looking at you know genes that are involved in de- understanding the process of forming the heart, and we think of that as a way to get into creating the engineering heart tissue, as you mentioned. And so the 3D bioprinting is clearly something that we felt like provides significant advantage um, in the way the technology is able to help pattern cell into a three-dimensional structure. So the 3D bioprinting has really been quite a new frontier for us. And it somewhat connects back to my original roots as a mechanical engineer undergrad at Stanford, where I started out you know, interested in trying to find this intersect between the cell biology and stem cell biology um, with the engineering. And so the 3D bioprinting really pretty much um, is a very interdisciplinary area that allows um, you know some creativity and, and also a lot of uh, sort of the self-understanding of how it works. So what we're really excited about is being able to create a vascularized tissue that enables perfusion the way the normal tissue would. And we feel like the way the engineering of the cardiac tissue has been has not really... Uh, taken on in the way that the native tissue work, which is having a immediately perfusable arterial in and venous out blood supply. And I think most people over the years have recognized the challenge of trying to engraft any large size tissue within the body that needs a fairly immediate blood supply, um, to the tissue itself, you know, so, uh, direction that we're taking on, and together with uh, other colleagues at Stanford, is to trying to understand how to develop a prefabricated engineering uh, engineer vessel system that gets down to the capillary level uh, inside the engineered tissue um, and you know as a uh, tissue engineer product that might potentially be used in the future.
0: It's really interesting that you've come full circle there. I wasn't aware that you actually had an interest that predated your doctorate in engineering um, because, you know, I've followed the arc of your career. And I just want to talk, you know, everyone talked about your role as a mentor. Uh, I just want to expand upon that, except I'm, I'm more curious about your path as a, as a mentee. Um, during your MD, PhD training, you were in a kind of like immunology inflammatory space as far as I could appreciate it. Uh, mm. and then your postdoc was with Stu Orkin, you know, the famous Stu Orkin where you had that bombshell paper that is super high in the canon of cardiovascular and developmental biology. Uh, but the twist there for me is that Stu Orkin is famous for, you know, pediatrics, he monk, right? Um, and, of course, he's fundamentally a stem cell biologist. I, I recognize that that's the common denominator. But the paper yours was at, about this bipotent progenitor in the heart. Uh, and, you know, that's as stem as it gets, you know, in, in keeping with Stewart and stem cell biologist interest. But I just wonder how that went. In a lab that was really focused on hemoc and hematopoiesis, did he just let you off the leash uh, and check in from time to time? Uh, on your project or was he like interested in the heart Uh, and also uh, following from that do you make space uh, for research in your own lab do you make space among the trainees that is similarly like outside the labs quote-unquote box you know something that's really far fieldness of, of heart development or stem cell engineering in the cardiac space per se Yeah,
2: so that's a great question, and there are many dimensions, I think, of what that actually covers. So I'll sort of start with the reason of having switched from working on inflammatory vascular biology, which connected closer to my clinical link in interest in cardiovascular medicine than necessarily, say, stem cell, which I think has Pri- previously not necessarily been an area the cardiovascular people have gotten into until relatively more recently. And so after finishing my PhD, MD-PhD training, and the clinical internal medicine training, which was also done at Duke, when I went to Master Honor Hospital for my cardiology fellowship, I knew that the research year that I'll be taking on is going to be where I would set the future of my own research would be when I eventually finish that training phase and start my own lab. So what I wanted is to be able to acquire some additional training in areas of research, not necessarily just like what I was doing in my PhD work. And one thing that I felt like I was really missing in the tools available to address and understand biology is the ability to create in vivo models that allows you to look at the actual in vivo consequence of a perturbation like gene deletion. And I think that was born out of the fact that my PhD centered a lot around biochemistry work where everything was done as in vitro testing of different you know, chemical reactions or treating factors on cells and reading the readout in cells in culture, to me, it was somewhat missing the dimension of knowing how that process connected in vivo. So I wanted to have the ability to do in vivo work to show what I was interested in doing in vitro could have a consequence in the in vivo context. So when I was looking for potential mentors, that was one element that I was looking for, someone who can create in vivo models with gene knockout as an example. Mm. And So Stuart was someone who had done gene knockout work from quite some time ago and has created many different gene loss of function um, through conventional knockout in ES cells. that was then implanted in the chimera in mice to create the mouse model. So That fit a certain interest and dimensions that I have. Um, The other interest was actually the heart development side, which was, again, brand new, and Stu Orkin actually did quite a bit of heart development work along with the hematology and oncology work. So even though his lab was very well-known internationally for hematology, because the factor he was interested in, this GATA transcription factor, had one set of them that regulate cardiac development. Hmm. He had always one or two people prior to me joining the lab who would get involved in some aspect of cart development. So there was at least some link with cardiac that he had to have had an interest in having me come and join the lab. Um, But it certainly was never the main interest of the lab. So there was time to time when I was in lab feeling a bit on the fringe of what everyone else in the lab is doing. So it was a bit, you know, uncomfortable, I think, as a trainee at the time to feel like you're never what the main interests of the lab have been while you're doing that. But I also felt like it was an advantage, if I can get over the uncomfortable part of it, to be in an environment where people are doing such interesting and creative science that other people in the cardiac field that have not actually been doing, hmm. you know, so for me, it was one of these things that if I sort of could get through that an ease of what I would be able to do and could I really do something interesting here in an environment that other people are not there to immediately help me with my own research project, but sort of more peripherally help me, then I could potentially get into having something new and interesting. And then so that paper that came out working in Storkin's lab, you know, was, I think, fortuitous in the sense that I managed to sort of work my way through a lot of the science of heart development, largely on my own, with some, you know, experts around in the Boston community who were very gracious in, you know, Meeting with me and talking about you know some of you know their work and their ideas So people like Bill Pooh at Boston children you know was extremely you know great in being able to uh, you know provide that kind of help. I also had in a somewhat of a um, informal role as advisor uh, from Cricket Simon, who Arun uh, know very well, working in her lab. So she has always provided me you know lots of you know very useful advice over the years as I was doing my training. So, you know, I was able to get advice from people, you know, more informally about the field, but the actual work that I've done was having to really be done, in, you know, mostly on my own. But I felt like that was kind of a good way to, you know, really learn how to do science and be very independent. And in Orkin's lab, you really do have to be very independent in that sense, because he is very hands off. it it comes to what you do with your own research on a day-to-day basis, you know, so when you meet with them, you talk about science at a very, very high and conceptual level and not about the very nitty-gritty details of what exactly, you know, you were doing with a particular experiment or with a specific reagent per se. So, you know, you have to learn about, you know, what kind of things Makes sense to talk about, you know, with somebody likes to and when you have your fairly precious meeting time, and then find the right people to work out what to do with, you know, the specifics that if you couldn't figure out how to get your gene targeting to work in a you know ESL line, because the gene just wasn't taking, and you need to figure out some other way to do that, you know, the people to ask are other people around you who are doing targeting as well of other genes in a hematopoietic system. So, you know, so I think that, you know, was some of the reason how I transitioned from inflammatory work into stem cell work into in vivo gene targeting work. um, And then that has sort of continued on um, to this day, a lot of the things that I've started back then.
1: Yeah, you know, kind of coming full circle. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of the mechanisms and discoveries that you made back in the day, you know, the foundation for a lot of the work that folks are doing right now, but even when it comes to, you know, making better iPS cardiomyocytes, making them more mature, and in fact, you you're still working on that exact topic, utilizing some of these fundamental principles of cardiac developmental biology to improve cardiac differentiation in vitro. And you actually recently published a paper in Cell Stem Cell that, utilizes this show's favorite cell signaling pathway, the the wind signaling pathway to actually activate the proliferation of cardiomyocytes. Uh, a cell type doesn't that doesn't normally divide, right? And mm-hmm. full disclosure, I was kind of involved in the precursor to the story that actually used bioactive lipids to induce iPS cardiomyocyte division, but you guys really took this proliferation thing to the next level. And now all of us on the show here, you, me, and Daylon, are iPS cardiomyocyte aficionados. So we can appreciate the utility this holds, but why don't you explain to our listeners why this iPS cardiomyocyte proliferation study is so important?
2: Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up because as many people who work in cardiac tissue engineering realize, is the number of cell that you need to create a full-scale engineer tissue is just tremendous you know on the multiple billions level for one you know construct that you create and if you were to do this on a scale of experimental testing many constructs for repetition and many different experimental design it adds up very quickly the number of cells that you need and for most part people are only able to generate you know a few million 10 million 50 million for each differentiation which as i think everyone certainly here knows it's quite you know time intensive and resource intensive so what we wanted to do is to figure out a way to generate an extremely large number of cardiomyocyte that starts off from the point after you've already finished with the initial steps of differentiation because most people who have done this realizes a lot of the efficiency of differentiation has been preset right from the very start of the differentiation process within the first five, seven days of in vitro differentiation. So if you have to continually go back and restart that same process, you take into a lot of variability from experiment to experiment to experiment. But if you can get to the point of having certain number that's already committed as cardiomyocyte and then really scale that up afterwards, then you have this significantly larger number of cardiomyocyte that are relatively consistent because they come from the same differentiation stage and then expand that into a scale that allows you to make a lot more constructs so that was one of the reasons for having you know an interest in figuring out how do you expand the cardiomyocyte itself because it allow, uh, allow you to not keep doing the cycles of starting each differentiation that takes into a lot of variability so that's sort of one thing but the other thing was somewhat related to this interest in the biology of cardiomyocyte maturation i think most people have had interest in trying to figure out what is it that the cardiomyocytes you know go through as a mature and shuts down on its ability to proliferate And if the proliferation is the interest, then presumably it relates to the inhibition of maturation or reversal even of maturation. So the twos are like, you know, what many people think of as two sides of the same coin. If you want to proliferate, you have to suppress maturation, or if you want to mature, you have to suppress proliferation. And for us, I think, Wind really plays a lot into that particular process because in many biological systems, when clearly is a major regulator that comes right in that nexus of proliferation and maturation or differentiation. So, when we first started out testing, it was you know not entirely sure in our minds if this reapplication of the Wnt pathway after the cardiomyocytes have already been committed was going to work out because many of the previous work have centers around wind stimulating progenitor to enable expansion of the progenitor. But when you want to make cardiomyocyte, you have to silence. So it could very well have been that if you take a cardiomyocyte that's already committed and you apply wind, either it would just not respond, which was one possible outcome, or it would make the cells turn into something different and no longer cardiomyocyte, which wasn't necessarily what we may want either. So there was a lot of possibility for not having this actually happen. And what we were pretty excited that it actually worked exactly the way we have liked, which is the wind stimulation suppress the maturation. So slow down that natural progression of becoming terminally differentiated and exiting cell cycle and some would suspend cardiomyocyte in this immature state and it's by having this suspension of this very immature stage cardiomyocyte that enable us to leverage the native proliferative potential so that the cells could continue on and expand and expand and the important part in my mind of a Having the wind do this rather than other ways of inducing proliferation, like overdriving a cell cycle process, is that the wind pathway can be turned off eventually, and when you turn off the wind pathway, the cells will continue and forward differentiate and mature naturally into the cardiomyocyte that they are to be, you know so. Having the ability to control the expansion and then having the control to make it differentiate and mature are two things that are clearly extremely important in the cells that we wanna have for the engineered cardiac tissue. So there really were two things about this expansion, you know, that we we're quite lucky in being able, you know, to accomplish with this paper. You know that now allows us and many other people, you know, to utilize this strategy for either disease models or engineered tissue creation. Um, that we're certainly, you know, going, you know, full steam on trying to use this for our in, uh, tissue engineering applications.
0: Yeah, and that's it, right? At the end of the day, uh, we're moving from early days that was concept theory promise to now, you know, making this actually real, practical. And that's a matter of scale. You got to scale this stuff up, right? Um, but getting back to the basics for a second, I'm going to presume to label you as a developmental and or stem cell biologist with a clinical focus primarily on congenital heart disease. That's what I'm calling you, Sean. Okay, bear with me. Um, of course, so. Heart defects are are, are a huge issue, right? Uh, 1% of all births, that's 40,000 a year in the U.S. alone. Um, But on the flip side of that, there's heart disease, right? Which kills about 650,000 a year in the U.S. So it's a different scope of the problem. But then there's a whole other thing, you know, a a heart defect in a baby, the whole potential for their life versus someone near the end of life, who knows? Um, I can imagine uh, part of the freedom... Uh, of having so many problems, so much unmet disease burden is that you're allowed to just work on the problem that's right in front of you, or uh, you're allowed to work on the problem that you have the best tools to address. Um, But uh, the question is, are there other factors? You know, we talk about differential scope here of, of disease burden there. Are there other factors, namely like funding availability, the scope of the disease, as I said, the difficulty of solving the problem, like making a whole heart from scratch, that's pretty tough. Um, do any of those parameters have an influence or drive your specific research inquiry? You know, Are there these extrinsic factors that kind of shape your efforts?
2: Yeah, that's also a great question question and how to make decision on whether to go into a line of research, you know, or go into applying for a certain grant, I think is, um, you know, always a challenging decision that requires, you know, a bit of strategic, I guess is best word that I can say, um, you know, sort of strategic thinking. Um, as an example, so for the probably the entire career so far that I have not spent a lot of effort trying to do direct cell injection into the myocardium. And there are many people, you know, over the last almost two decades um, trying to inject cells into the myocardium. For me, it was an approach that, that I had a lot of issues with. Now, certainly i don't want to you know trash on people who have been very you know enthusiastic about the idea of putting cells by direct injection approach but for me there was a lot of things that felt very challenging you know for that to actually work and take it all the way into a therapy and this is where some of the clinical training and clinical background for me, that has come into it. When you see the kinds of cells that are injected or if you see the amount and engraftment that people are able to convincingly demonstrate, from where that is and from what you need to actually treat somebody who has the kinds of heart disease that you see people you know, mimic in animal model, there's just so much more that has to happen Before you get to the point where you're coming anywhere close to what the clinical side would feel, you know, convinced that something is actually there for this to work eventually as a therapy, to be willing to take this on into a much larger scale clinical trial. And then, so for all this time of trying to see what kind of things people have been doing, I was not so convinced that this is going to work or at least it's not going to work in any time you know soon so what i was then having to make a decision on even though there was clearly tons of you know resource in grants that's supporting people trying to get out and do the cell injection work and in fact you know when we submit our grants throughout the, you know mid 20 2000s for example we would get all the reviewer comments coming back and say well this cardiac progenitor cells that you uncover is interesting and yes there's a lot of biology you could do but why don't you inject into the heart and show me that it actually could do something and that you know you know I sort of have to just swallow it and says well it was the decision that I made that you know I'm not going to go into it because it just didn't make sense for what we're trying to do so the only part for me that so far had made more sense is to be able to create an engineered tissue at a much larger scale and having the cells that could survive and try to identify ways for that to be useful. Again, I'm not necessarily um, going to be able to predict if the engineered tissue graph is going to do better than injecting cells by you know solution with single individual cells as particles. But there's conceptually for me something you know, more appealing and interesting in creating a full scale tissue, and then try to find a way for that to work its way back into repairing injuries than to just do the single individual cell injections, Mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, so that's, what I made my decision on, which of course probably meant that I had missed out on many, many millions of dollars of research, you know, that I might have been able to get just by making the decision to actually do the cell injection experiment like, you know, my reviewer, you know, had wanted to see. But I would say, you know, one of the things that somebody, now I can't remember who, um, very wisely taught me that, you know, life is short, you know, don't, spend your time doing things that you're not happy with or not interested in doing just because, you know, there is money on the table, you know? So, Mm -hmm. and I still felt like, you know, that's a excellent advice that I also provide to people who work in my lab, you know, is that, you know, go for things that you are really, really excited about and that you feel like it has, you know, a much better potential than to kind of follow the herd and just do what everybody else is doing you know, or where the money is at that moment, because, you know, in the end, you know, you, you, got to do what you want that, and you're excited about. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, solid advice. And a lot of times it's, if you follow that passion and you're doing something that no one else is doing, then you become the world's expert on that topic. Right. And then people want to give you money to do that research anyways. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of a, kind of works out anyways. Right. And so a lot of, your training and your expertise has come from the clinical side, right? You're a physician scientist and you can take your clinical training and really apply it to, you know, what you're doing in the lab. Uh, so you've done your clinical training at, you know, MGH in Boston, and you've also, uh, did, you did your MSTP and, uh, MD PhD at Duke university, go blue devils. Um, and the Yeah, absolutely. I can see you wearing that Duke shirt. Thanks, Sean. really appreciate that. Uh, Yeah, that was not, you know, that was not intentional. That was all you. That was not us. (laughs) But one cool thing about your whole training process is that you shared it in a way. You've shared it with a partner in science and a partner in life. And that is our former podcast guest, Dr. Joy Wu, who is currently your for, your fellow Stanford professor and also a physician scientist herself. And I've actually known both of you since my early days in grad school, and you've been nothing but phenomenal mentors, not only to me, but to so many dozens of other undergraduate and graduates and clinical uh, students out there at Stanford University and elsewhere, and For our guests out there who don't know about Dr. Wu and Dr. Wu, they've had this shared journey ever since their early days in the physician-scientist training program at Duke Duke University. And in particular, I think our listeners will be really interested uh, in in hearing about your path, your path together, Um, especially those of our listeners who are not only physician-scientists, but also scientist-couples. So... It's not always the easiest thing to actually navigate that road together, uh, but you've managed to do it and have been phenomenally successful in in doing that. So tell us about your journey together from from Duke to Boston and ultimately back to Stanford. What was that like?
2: Yeah, so I I should clarify first that Dr. Joy Wu is now my boss and have always (laughs) been my boss all throughout, you know, but officially... (laughs) as the vice chair of basic science in the department of medicine, she is my official boss in the department (laughs) of medicine. So, you know, add that onto many boss, you know, roles that she's had over the years, you know, with me at home and, and all sorts. So yeah, it definitely is, um, you know, a very interesting, exciting journey and certainly not without, you know, challenges along the way of having to manage two careers and two kids. Mm-hmm. And for us, we were fortunate to have a lot of support from family. So I definitely highlight the family support part because for us, we could never have done this without our family coming and helping us with child care as we go through the early years of our training. Um, so Joy and I, who met actually at Stanford towards the very end of my undergrad time, and she started one year behind me um, in college. Um, she joined me at Duke for the MD/PhD program, and so that you know sort of gave us our initial start. And it you know sort of took a lot of, uh, I guess, faith on her part. And, you know, our kids now sort of thought that was entirely crazy and irresponsible that she would have left to go and join me at Duke after only knowing me for such a short period of time, you know, and making a whole entire life decision on somebody like me, you know, to actually go to Duke for her MD-PhD training as well, when she could have also other great opportunities for doing MD-PhD training elsewhere. Um, so. You know, it, it sort of, um, you know, was interesting to, you know, go through this process of developing two physician scientists days early on and then making decisions about career next steps. For, for, for example, with residency training, you know, the decision was to stay at Duke while she was finishing, you know, with her um, MDPOT training. Um, certainly, some people may have decided that they want to do residency elsewhere, and then you have to deal with a lot of the, you know, long distance, which is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for us, I stayed at Duke for the internal medicine residency until when she finished her MD/PhD, and then we both were able to move together to Boston when I started my fellowship and she started her internal medicine. It gave us actually a bit of stability in Boston in the sense there was a lot of years of training. So I was doing my clinical cardiology and then research in cardiology and the sort of instructor phase transition before becoming onto tenure track assistant professor. So a good sort of seven to nine years of that window. We stayed in Boston for 11, but the seven to nine years was relatively set in Boston in the sense that we, you know, we're in a place with a lot of opportunity for different training, you know, available from residency to fellowship to research to instructor, and then eventually assistant professor part. So, you know, so that part we went through in Boston with the two kids growing up. You know, we had our you know first child when I was a medical intern and Joy was still finishing her PhD, and that was certainly quite interesting, you know, to have, um, a very young child and, and room will appreciate this, having a young child when you're still in the training phases of trying to, you know, become independent, um, and balancing between, you know, what you do with your, you know, house and household and child needs, um, versus what you do with your career. Um, and it took a lot of, um, you know, sort of negotiating, and you know, agreeing on you know what is the best thing to do, and you know, and a lot of sort of back and forth. You know, at one point, you know, one person take up more of the shares of what you do at home, and then you know, you make sure you recognize and remember that, and then you do that in you know reverse the next go around. So, you know, so I think for people who you know sort of wonder about how this two career you know with kids you know would you know work in a uh, you know in the family you know i think at the end of the day it really is a lot of um, you know mutual respect you know like your spouse's career is just as important as yours so you know you have to you know recognize that um and, and you know take care of it because you know, i think at the end of the day you know, you're going to have to, you know, live with each other, you know, and sort of face the fact that if, you know, if you did not do your share of the housework and you did not do your share of the childcare, you know, somebody else is going to have to, you know, pay for that. Um, so, so that's sort of how, you know, we, uh, try to deal with it throughout our career. And also, again, with the, uh, the job transitions. And I think, you know, this is one thing it's very, you know, complicated and confusing and job transition. How do two people, you know, make the decision to move and where would you actually, you know, go? And for us, it was the time when, you know, we were in Boston, you know, we were running our lab, kind of getting started. And then, you know, we made this move out from California, from Boston to California, you know, and a lot of people over the years have asked me like, you know, what is it that, you know, made you decide to move out West? Um, and it's definitely, you know, a, uh, you know, a good question, because, you know, we were both running our lab, you know, things were getting going, and we were doing well, you know, we were both on this NIH Director's Pioneer the, the Innovator Award. So there's not necessarily like a reason that we had to move. Um, you know, but there was a lot of reason why we did, uh, one of which is we had a lot of family out on the West Coast. And it was really, you know, good to be able to, you know, join our families who have been out on the West Coast. Joy's sister was in San Francisco. My sister lives in Mountain View, which is just one town over from Palo Alto. And Joy had a lot of her, you know, extended family, cousins, and you know, you know, a, a extended cousin network, like ten different families in the Bay Area. So, for us, that I think was really important, you know. And our parents who are living in Taiwan would really like to be able to come and see both my sister and I without having to do a lot of hop around within the U S as well. You know, so, you know, for us, I think the family part was definitely the most important um, in our decision to move out. Um, You know, but you know, also it it was a little hard to turn down being in California for one. um, And also, you know, having come back to where the two of us met, you know, originally as undergrad. So, you know, lots of different things, you know, but I think, you know, to some degree, um, you know, it, it took a while to get to this point, you know? Um, but again, as I said, the most important, you know, is just sort of remember remem- remembering what's the most important and that's your family, you know, your spouse, your children, um, you know, and I continue to still feel the same way.
0: It's quite a journey. I, I have to admit the the idea Of working closely with my wife, much less answering to her in a professional capacity, gives me serious anxiety. Mm. But I must say, nevertheless, I'm jealous of you two, the woos, as well as a room, but not because you live and work so closely with your wives, your spouses, but because you guys are in California and you're likely to reap the benefits either directly or indirectly of the re up. Of Proposition 71, the Proposition 14 that was recently approved this election, it authorizes 5.5 billion additional dollars in funding. That's added to roughly three billion that was initially allocated and has mostly been dispersed. The CERM has had a bit of a rocky road in its growth and maturation. We actually interviewed Kevin McCormack, who's a spokesperson for the CERM, in episode 100 of the podcast. I invite you guys. To listen to that, he, he very nicely laid out the evolution of the serum. But I just have to ask with induced pluripotent stem cells being on the set and they weren't before, also the lifting of federal restrictions on funding, also, you know, the argument that you know, it's enriching the, the intellectual capital of California, it's already overpoweringly enriched. There's a lot of people like you who were brought to California. Uh, based on Prop 71. so I don't know if that argument holds water. So how, how do you sell Prop 14 to the taxpayers? What's the rationale? Why do we need it?
2: Well, for sure in California, we are extremely excited you know about this next phase of CERM, and the ability to now really leverage all of the basic science work, that have been done from the first phase of CERN now into translating into therapy is really gonna be what this next CERN phase is gonna be super exciting and to see. And I think the horizon for t- discovering and developing new treatment takes such a long time, you know, step 15 to 20 years for the most part, tells you that even on the 10year funding cycle, you're unlikely to see actually something that have come out as a you know therapy within the time of your funding. So you know, having the second 10 years of funding, I think a lot of the promise that was provided from the first CERN funding is now really going to come into fruition. Um, I'll sort of just mention an example which the first CERM actually had already taken a huge part as one of the CERM disease team project. At Stanford, Weisman and Ravi Majetti had worked on CD47 monoclonal antibody as a strategy for treating tumor. And the CD47 work was supported by CERM as a large-scale clinical study um, to treating cancer patients that then allow it to move into a startup company called 47 that was then recently acquired, um, by Gilead. So the, you know, process of this entire development time, you know, was such a you know long scale. They started the work probably about 15 years ago in this identification of this molecule CD 47, you know, to finally then obtain the CERM funding to then move on into developing a commercial product, um, I can see that there will be many stories that will be exactly just like that that have been in development. That's going to get this massive boost of translation, you know, from the early stages. I mean, we certainly hope some of the things we're doing is going to follow along in the same path in getting the CERN boost um, to you know, translating towards clinic. Um, but you know, I think that. CD-47 example um, is going to be something I think a lot of the California taxpayer is going to get to see mm. and that it's going to make them very proud of having agreed in voting for this initiative to support the continuation of the stem cell work. So you know again, could not be more excited about the possibility um, you know to be able to do this um, in California.
1: Yeah. You know, fortunately or unfortunately, these things take time. And fortunately for us here in California, we have, you know, an extension of this amazing program in CIRM. Um, Not only is it instrumental for developing scientific careers, but most importantly, it's instrumental for developing therapies. And, you know, uh, hopefully the patients are going to really benefit from this and be proud of the the efforts that SERM is doing and has done. So we got to let you go, Sean, you know, we could talk to you forever. I could talk to you forever and I have talked to you forever, <laughs> but um, we got to let you go now. And before we do, we're going to ask you a couple of last quick rapid fire peripheral science questions. So starting off, what non-science book are you reading or that you've read recently that's awesome and that you would recommend to our listeners?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I I should tell you before I talk about that is I cannot, you know, leave this podcast without mentioning I still have this mug that says psychiatrist in my office (laughs) from a room, which attests to how much time that I spend in the office talking to people in lab. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, I'm very fond of that mug. Everybody <laughs> comes into office asks me about that. You're welcome. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, so <laughs> books, yes, there are a number of different books that I read, but I got to say that you know, as I get older, my memory's starting to fade. But of what I can remember relatively more recently is the Michelle Obama book. And the Michelle Obama book was uh, really interesting, you know, for a number of different reasons. I am sort of a aficionado for biographies. I always love to read what is it that people experience and how it shaped their thinking and how, the, you know, sort of led to decisions that they make. So, you know, for me, a biography, uh, you know, is just you know exciting and riveting. Um, but Michelle Obama's book was just, you know, so interesting to see that the way that she described you know her childhood, growing up, how to deal, you know, with some of the racial tensions, you know, in the community as she was growing up, and sort of see how she met this chap named Barack, um, and how it then led to this run into the, uh, you know, presidency, and also, you know, some very, you know, interesting tidbits as she talked about during the time of presidency and her trying to maintain a family inside the White House and what it took to get around the secret service to get out just to watch the fireworks outside for July 4th you know it was uh, you know such an interesting book you know that she wrote you know in a very personal way I mean, i'm a big believer in talking to people in this very conversational approachable you know way to explain you know what are even very big you know philosophical topic and she does such a good job you know
1: in that book so i highly recommend anyone to do it read it yeah it's a it's an exceptional book and uh an interesting parallel there you know a lot of that book was about um powerful couple and how that powerful couple managed to maintain their relationship while taking their careers to new heights although i don't think you enjoy have secret service well, though correct me if i'm wrong yeah. <laughs> maybe stanford provides it's alexa It's called Alexa. Gotcha, gotcha. So finally, wrapping things up, fill in the blanks. These are rapid fire fill in the blanks. The biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is blank.
2: Oh, yeah. I would be, I don't know. It's hard to say any one thing without offending other people when it comes to a question (laughs) like the biggest.
1: Come on, Sean. (laughs) Give me an answer.
2: (laughs) I mean – I'll I'll give you a safe answer. I know that people probably are not looking for safe answers, but this is a safe answer. The safe answer is adding on the CRISPRing to the stem cells. You know, I think it combined two things that clearly have had huge momentum in science within the last you know, 15 to 20 years. Um, the stem cell already gave you such an amazing platform to work with develop developmental biology um, and also engineer tissues for therapeutic application. But now you add the CRISPR and genome modification on top of all that, you know, it just kind of like turbo boosted the stem cell into a whole new other territory. So, you know, even though the CRISPR has now been around for some time, there's so much there is that you could do with it that I still think that the combination of bringing in CRISPR and stem cell into one is still going to be the you know the biggest you know biggest thing. I mean, of course, I will have to mention the single cell transcriptomic <laughs> is a new thing that many people, including us, have been doing. But I consider that as an analytical tool. You know, mm. it's a little differently from CRISPRing, which I think is a little more sort of more actively perturbational rather than just uh, profiling and and analytical. But, you know, again, as I said, it's hard to offend people without at least mentioning something that they're excited about.
1: It's a safe answer, but I think it's the right answer. I think that's actually the answer that I gave when I was interviewing here. So I think it's a good one. (laughs) Well, good. Yeah. So next up, I would have never gotten to this point in my career without blank.
2: So I think people... Coming back to it, when I was in Boston trying to make a decision whether to go to Stu Orkin's lab, it, it was somewhat, you know, complicated because uh, Children's Hospital, where Stu Orkin is at, is not Mass General Hospital where I was doing my fellowship. So whenever you go to another institution to do training, when you're in one institution, it comes with lots of different, you know, possible issues, and I think the usual is funding. Because, you know, who would you get your funding from? And I have to give you know, all the credit to the fellowship director then, Ken Block, and also uh, Peter Yerchek, who essentially guarantees me that I will be supported if I make the decision to go to children to do the research that I wanted to do. And they'll make that happen somehow. You know, and I think if that did not, you know, come through, there is probably no, you know, Shang Wu and cardiac development and stem cell biology, you know, in this world, you know, had they said that, no, you must stay here and do the research with someone because we're paying for your research work. So, you know, I, I sort of took that to heart and I tried to do the same, you know, encouraging people to find the opportunity wherever that is, that really excites them. And then we'll figure out how to get the finance and other part work out.
1: Yep, it really does make all the difference. And next up, when it comes to blank, I'm pretty much useless.
2: Ah, that one takes a lot more thinking. I would say, (laughs) when it comes to advising your daughter on things related to what they (laughs) have in school, you know, I, I just get the eye rolling you know, whenever I try to say something. And that was sort of the continual exercise that I dealt with when they come to me, which I kind of wonder, why do you come to me if you were not going to listen to anything I have to say? But apparently that is part of the parenting exercises for them to come and ask you questions, which you clearly are never going to have the right answer for, but they do it anyway. I think it's just, you know, for the sake of frustrating you in the process so they could just, you know, kind of happily go off and say, see, I knew that did, dad didn't know anything and I just proved it.
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to find that out pretty soon with uh, with Keon, my son. Um, I mean, he's uh, six months old right now, so I've got a few years to to go. But, you know, it's coming. It's coming. Arun,
0: he's so, already he's already seen through you, buddy. He's got your number. <laughs>
1: I'll call you back when that happens, Sean. I'll, I'll need your mentorship again. Yeah. Trust me. Finally, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on my way out, it is my blank.
2: Of course, the cardio psychiatry mug. You oh, would yeah. not leave without the cardio psychiatry mug.
1: I appreciate that. I set you up for that answer. You're
2: welcome. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, seriously, probably, you know, as everybody with laptops, my entire life lives on the laptop so you know that's relatively easy but i have to say though the cardio psychiatry you know will come along with the laptop
1: I I think the mug is the right answer. I mean, everything's backed up on the cloud anyways, Uh right? But that mug is, you know, one of a kind, right? That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Sean, just like you, you are one of a kind. And I am so fortunate and thankful to have you as a mentor and have had you as a mentor for like the last 10 plus years and hopefully well, well into the future. So thank you so much for joining us here on the Stem Cell Podcast. It's been a blast catching up with you. And can't wait to catch up with you in person. Hopefully, not too long from now. Fingers crossed.
2: <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. though. this is really great. And Arun, you are definitely my model trainee. I'm gonna, you know, refer everyone that I have who's interested in, you know, joining the lab to talk to you, since you're the success story. So thank you again <laughs> for having me here. Thank you, Jay Long, for uh, the podcast chat. This has been a lot of fun. You know,
0: thank you. Thank you, Sean. This has been great. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode, you guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com. There you can get the show notes, including an episode summary, all the links to the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. I'm there. I'm on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com there you can give us feedback you can suggest some guests we love it when you guys suggest guests because it shows us who you want to hear from and uh, that's what we want to give you what you want Uh, so get back at us guys this was a nice episode join us in a couple weeks for another thanks for listening